and thank you for coming out on uh, such a cold morning. Uh, but it's beautiful, isn't it? Praise God. So, uh, I would ask please if you would take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. Allow me please to pray for us. Uh, Lord, as we embark upon the day in which we will be hearing your word, Lord, we are uh, human beings and as such we are finite and fallen. And Lord, we lack stamina, we lack strength, we need, uh, we need you, Lord. And so we cry out to you, Lord, and ask that you would please quicken our minds so that we can pay attention and learn and receive and retain. Father, I pray that we not only would understand what the text is saying, but I pray, Lord, that we would be given grace by your Spirit to be convicted and convinced, and Lord, to have the courage to move on and to apply. Thank you, Father in Heaven, for your word. Uh, we believe that your word is absolute truth. And so with confidence today, uh, we study and we uh, we move forward. So be with me as I bring the word and with the people as they hear. And may your son receive great glory as a result. And it is in his name, the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So this morning for Sunday School, we're going to be looking at the last two verses in the book of James. James, the brother of Christ, uh, writes this book, and he ends the book in what may seem like a very unusual way. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, uh, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let me do the best that I can to explain these two verses, and then I'll try to make some practical application. Uh, first of all, we need to note that James is speaking to believers. That is very important, those who have been born again, those who are in the family of God, because he calls them my brothers. And not only are these people sons of God, but they are also spiritually siblings of one another. And for our purposes this morning, uh, that might even be more important we are, if we are saved, spiritually siblings of one another. And notice what happens to this one who is a Christian. It says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Now again, we note that the word among you means that this person is at least in the visible outward body of Christ, and we could even go so far as to say that they are converted. Notice what happens. They wander from the truth. Greek word for wander there is very similar to our English word planet. And the reason that James uses this word is because from our perspective, planets do not appear to stay in one place, but they drift. Now, James is purposely ambiguous here. He does not spell out the cause of the drifting. Uh, it is purposely vague. It could be a doctrinal error, it could be heresy, it could be a moral failure, it could be unbelief, it could be a relational failure, it could be a failure to love the brethren, it could be worldliness, it could be a lack of concern for the kingdom of God and the church, it could just be apathy, it could be caused by a false teacher, it could be caused by an inward desire for worldly pleasure, it could be the devil seeking to devour this person, it could be a combination of the above. J 
James could not be more general or ambiguous. All he says is that someone is drifting. And then notice that there is a person who comes along, and that person is among you, also a member of the church. And for one reason or another, uh, this person starts to drift and move away from Jesus' righteousness in the church, but notice that they do not wander permanently. It says, and someone brings him back. So once again, James leaves this very open-ended. Uh, his description of how the restorer works is not spelled out. It could be a private conversation one-on-one. It could be a gentle reminder. It could be a stern rebuke. It could be a letter or an email or a text. It could be two or three going to an individual, confronting them on their sin. Or it could be public church discipline. It could be a brief confrontation, or it could be a battle that goes on for months. Once again, I think it is noteworthy that James tells us nothing about the restorer. He tells us nothing about the method. He tells us nothing about the attitude or the effort of the restorer. All we know from verse 19 is that there is someone that calls themselves a Christian, and then they begin to act or believe like a non-Christian, And then someone in the church notices this, and they employ whatever means are necessary to bring the sinner back to repentance. Please also note that this is not a passage about evangelism, per se. The erring one professes to be a Christian. He is among you. Uh, This is a text about restoring one who is backslidden. Now, Ultimately, perhaps this might become a text about evangelism because the wanderer proves that he was never saved to begin with. But for now, James is working off of the assumption that this is a true child of God who is off the path, but he is still in sight. That's verse 19. Are you with me so far? Everything everything clear so far? Just even nonverbal. Good, good. All right. When we get to verse 20, it becomes a little bit more complicated. James spells out in verse 20 the benefits of winning the erring brother back to the paths of righteousness, and there are two of them. Let me read that verse again. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. That is benefit number one. And here's benefit number two. will cover a multitude of sins. Now, This saving their soul from death does not mean that the person is about to die physically. But there are cases where this happens. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, they drop dead on the spot, Acts chapter 5. There's also that situation in Corinth where people are misusing and abusing the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, well, for this reason, some of you are sick, some of you even sleep, meaning you are dead as a result of using the Lord's Supper. That is something that does happen, but that is not what James is talking about here. When James uses the word soul, S-O-U-L, he is talking about that part of us which will live eternally. The reason reason we know that is because back in chapter 1, verse 21, James says that we are to receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Uh, which begs the question, as we've read the verse, 
three questions. Number one, how is it that someone who is already saved is going to have their soul saved? Does that not seem a little bit redundant? Did you see it in the text? You go after a person, you're going to save their soul from death. How does a person who is already saved get saved? What would be the purpose of me this morning saying to you, I would really like it if you would come to church today. Please come to church today. I am begging you to come to church today. And you're like, wait, we're already here. How is it that a person who is already at church can be told to come to church? How is it that somebody who is already saved can have their soul saved? Question number two, which is very, very curious, and that is, please note, who is doing the saving in this verse. According to this text, it is not God the Father, it is not Jesus Christ the Son, it is not the Holy Spirit, but the one doing the saving is the one who brings back the sinner from his wandering. It is a fellow human being. So the question needs to be asked, how does a human being save another human being because only God can save sinners? Closely related, There is a third question, and that is this. How can a multitude of sins be covered by a fellow human being? Because when we're talking about the sins being covered, we're not talking about looking the other way. We're not talking about sweeping them under the rug. We're not talking about taking a can of, of, of spray paint and spraying over rust. We're not talking about that at all. We are talking about the removal of those sins. Let him know that he who saves the sinner from the error of his way covers a multitude of sins. How can one human being forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. How does a human being give the sin of another? Those three questions really need to be in our minds if we're going to deal with the text honestly. Well, let me borrow at this time from John Piper who lines up five biblical truths which explain how God uses human agency to accomplish his purposes in the salvation of another. In other words, how God keeps us secure, that this is an explanation of the perseverance of the saints, uh, and there are uh, five aspects to it. First one, one that you know very well, point number one, and that is that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. We are not saved by our good works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are saved simply by believing in Christ Jesus. You cannot work your way into a right relationship with God. Romans 3.28 We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So, if you are saved, you came into a right relationship with God by believing in Jesus Christ apart from your good work. I hope that you believe that. I hope that you are saved. If you are not saved, please know that the means by which you become saved is that you trust in Christ alone. You cannot work your way to heaven. Point number one, I think we're all in agreement with that. Point number two is that those who are justified or saved will certainly be in heaven. 100% of them will be glorified. Everybody who gets saved on this planet will 
ultimately be in heaven. I was raised to believe that one could lose their salvation. I was raised in an extremely Arminian background, believing that from day to day, you didn't know whether or not you were saved. You could give it and lose it and give it and lose it. I do not believe that any longer. I believe the Bible teaches that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and I believe that once we are saved, we are always saved. You can call it eternal security. You can call it perseverance of the saints. But the fact of the matter is, there is a zero dropout rate between those who are genuinely converted and those who make it to heaven. They all make it to heaven. Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Everybody who gets justified ultimately gets glorified. Nobody drops out between justification and glorification. Therefore, you cannot lose your salvation. Point number three is where I need you to put on your thinking caps a little bit. This might be a little bit different to you. Uh, this is something which sort of holds point number one and point number two together. It is a really important point, and that is this. Nobody will be glorified. Nobody will be finally saved who does not continue in faith. If a person does not continue in faith, they will not be in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, this is the quintessential passage on the gospel. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. And the next word is if. I-F, if. I-F, if. A conditional statement. You are saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Or, as Matthew writes in chapter 10, verse 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now please understand, we are not justified in God's sight by means of hanging on. However, if we don't hang on, to the end. It is a sign that we were never saved to begin with. And if we don't get this third point, then it, it, it has a critical outworking in the way that we treat one another and the way that we treat our own souls. Because if you don't get this point, that, that, that an indicator that one is truly saved is that they will follow through to the end, then what you might do is you might become relaxed. And you might start to drift and say, well, since I am saved by faith alone in Christ alone, therefore it doesn't matter how I live, and since it doesn't matter how I live, well, I know it's wrong, but at least I will be in heaven. At least I'm saved. That kind of an attitude indicates that the person was never saved to begin with. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, to do not be deceived. Why does he say do not be deceived? He says do not be deceived because there's a chance that we might be deceived. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So, we have to hang on as an indicator that we indeed are saved. We're not saving ourselves, but the evidence that we are saved is that we will hang on. And if we don't get this 
third point that Piper brings out, we might become relaxed in the way that we view one another. We will look at them as they drift away. Now that they they have they have they have come out of the world into the church, and they have professed faith in Christ, and they have walked with Christ for a period of time, but then they have gone back into the world, and now they are living for the devil, and they're living for the flesh, and we look at them, and we say to ourselves, well, isn't this a shame? Because they have lost their joy, and they have lost their effectiveness, and, 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 and really, they are a bad testimony for Christ in the church. But at least they're going to be in heaven. And the Bible says, no, they're not going to be in heaven. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Or if they were of, of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might be manifest for evidence that's with us to begin with at all. The third point is that everyone who is truly saved will continue in faith. And if a person does not continue in faith, they were not saved to begin with. When I went from being a militant Arminian to believing in eternal security, this point was not explained to me. So, I once believed you could lose your salvation, then it was very easily shown to me that you cannot lose your salvation, but I believed, well, once saved, always saved, and since you cannot lose your salvation, then it doesn't matter how you live, and the fact of the matter is, it does matter how you live, not that you save yourself, but when you do not live as though you are saved, you are giving evidence that you were never saved to begin with. Point number four is that God himself will keep his children from finally falling away. How do I know that tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and still be saved? It's not because I made a decision 45 years ago. It's because he is holding on to me. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is God who keeps us safe. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Romans chapter 11 verse 29 The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He is the one who is hanging on to me. I think this morning is a beautiful illustration of this. We have a little child. Let's say for example, it's Sydney. You are walking from your house to the car. And you don't want her to slip. You don't want her to, to, to crack her head open on the sidewalk. And so, John, you reach down and you hold her hand. And you say, here, sweetheart, hold my hand. And as she is reaching up, she is using all the strength that she has to hold on to you. But the reason why she's not going to be in the emergency room this morning is not because her grip is so strong. It is because your grip is so strong on her and the re her legs might be flailing or whatever, but she's not going to hit the pavement, pavement because you are holding on to her. We are holding on to Christ, but the reason that we are still in the game is not because our grip is so strong, it is because he is holding on to us and he will not let go. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. 
I am going to make it not because I have such a grip or because I am so resolved toward making it, but he is hanging on to me. Several years ago, I was on a mission trip in Minsk in Belarus, and my son Parker was with me, and we had an hour to kill, and so we went into Dorky Park, and we rode a Ferris wheel. This particular Ferris wheel had two types of seats. There was the little car that you would get inside. This is where the normal people sat. You close the door and you enjoy the ride. And then there was this other type of car, you can even call it that, where you would sit in a seat and your legs would dangle down and you would have a bar that would come over your shoulders and you would ride around on this very high Ferris wheel. And my son says, let's get in that one. I don't know what I was thinking because I am deathly afraid of heights. We get in that one. And as it starts to move, I realize, okay, this was a very bad idea. I am frightened for my life. And my son, who's about 20 years old at the time, 2021, knows that I am frightened. He gets a kick out of it. And so he starts to rock the car. And then he reaches over the bar that's over my shoulders and he is trying to, 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 to pull it up and he's, he's pushing on my car and he's doing everything he can because he knows that it's unnerving me. Now the whole time and I have a really good grip I have a hold of my shoulder harness and I am bearing down on it and my knuckles are white and I'm hanging on confessing every sin that I've ever committed and I'm promising God that I'm never ever going to sin again and I'm looking down on the ground thinking that my death is going to occur, and I'm really squeezing as hard as I can, and the car comes all the way around, and you see me today, I am alive. Do you know why I'm alive today? It's not because I was pulling down on the shoulder harness. It's because there was a steel bolt about the size of my fist above my head, which was keeping our car attached to the entire apparatus. That is what was holding me secure. You're going to be saved tomorrow, not because you're holding on, but because he is holding on. He who called you is faithful, he will also bring it to pass. That's the fourth point. Here's number five. And this is where James 5, 19 and 20 come in. God keeps his children by means of his children. The way that God keeps us in the game is by means of one another. It is in and through the local church that we are kept secure. Hebrews 3, 13 and 14. But exhort one another. Let's just stop right there. You are to be speaking words to one another as church members. There is a reason why we are to be talking to one another. Hebrews 3, 13 and 14. But exhort one another every day. Stop right there. We need to be in one another's lives, not just on Sunday. We are to be in one another's lives daily. But exhort one another every day, 
as long as it is, as it is called today. Why? Why do we need to do that? The author of Hebrews goes on to say, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, I-F, conditional statement, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You guys talk to one another. You talk to one another all the time. And the reason why you need to talk to one another all the time is so that you will not be deceived by the, you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For you have come to share in Christ if, if conditional statement, if indeed you hold your original confidence firm to the end. We exhort one another in order to keep one another in the faith. Here's a quote from Piper. Eternal security is a community project. It is sure for God's elect. But it is not without means. Therefore, we should take one another with ultimate seriousness. End quote. In other words, if being a church member means that you just come and sit and leave, you are missing the point of church. We are here to help one another get to heaven. That is the means that God has ordained. Now, the end is sure. For whoever is justified will be glorified. But the same God who ordained the end ordained the means by which the end would be accomplished. And what is the means? The means is us. The means is the church. The means is one another. James is not denying that we are saved by the blood of Christ and the death of Christ and his resurrection and, and we are, we are, we are justified through his resurrection. We are saved by Jesus dying in our place and being raised for our justification. But it is also true that faith without works is dead. And unless the works are present, which give evidence. Those, 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 those works are not meritorious, but unless the works are present, which give evidence of faith, then faith isn't there either. And if faith is not there, then that soul will be lost. So, you go to someone who's wandering. When you go to them, if they are a true believer, they're going to hear you, and they're going to come back. The reason they're going to come back is because they have the Spirit of God. But the reason they're going to come back is because God has a hold of them and he will not let them go. If when you go to them, they do not hear you, and ultimately they stay in the world with the devil, following the deeds of the flesh, we then are to conclude that their salvation was a fake salvation. It wasn't true. They were not really saved to begin with. If they come back, we are to understand that what James 5, 19 and 20 is telling us is actually true. Someone has gone out, saved a wanderer from their wandering, brought him back. A multitude of sins have been covered and they have been rescued. Look at it this way. Nathan goes to David 
And when he speaks to David, he is not going so that David's joy will be restored. Although, David's joy was restored. But he is going to rescue David from eternal damnation. Are you saying that David wasn't saved until he repented of his sin with Bathsheba? Not saying that at all. Are you saying David lost his salvation? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that when David is confronted by Nathan and he responds with repentance and a broken heart, he is giving evidence that he really is saved. For consider Saul. Saul starts off very well and he begins to drift into pride and into sin. And he is confronted. He is confronted by Samuel and he does not listen. He is confronted by Jonathan, his own son, and he does not listen. He is confronted by David, and he does not listen. He is confronted by a witch, and he does not listen. He is confronted by dead Samuel, and he doesn't listen. And ultimately, the man commits suicide, and we have no reason to believe today that Samuel, I'm sorry, that Saul was actually saved. David and Saul, what's the difference between the two? They both have someone coming after them. David indicates that he really does belong to Christ because when confronted, he repents and comes back. Now, when you have a church and we see people coming in through the front door, it is a great joy that newcomers come to church. I mean, it's always nice be somebody new coming. And isn't it wonderful? I mean, you rejoice when you see someone is going to join the church. They're going to become a part of the church. The church is, is, is adding people. That is a joy. And I don't think that that joy should ever be diminished. But churches also have a back door. And that's where people drift out. And it is far less exciting to go after the one who is drifting for several reasons. First of all, we live in a society which is so privatized where basically what you are told is it's none of your business. Mind your own business. I'll live my life and you live yours. Secondly, we are very busy people and we work very hard. It's all that we can do to keep ourselves in the game. How are we supposed to have time to go after someone else? Third, generally speaking, people who are drifting do not want to be bothered by you. I know me, myself, that when I sin, I do not want that to come into the light. For men have evil hearts and they love darkness rather than light. I, 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 I don't, I don't want someone coming to confront me on my sin and therefore I will do whatever I can to be resistant. I will not Return the text. I will not return the telephone call. I will be very evasive in the conversation. I don't want someone coming after me because I don't want my sin to be exposed. That's how we are. That's how we have been since the Garden of Eden. Adam, where are you? He is a naked man standing behind a bush. When God is coming after him in love to restore him, he is hiding from the presence of God. That is who we are. That's who we always will be. Nevertheless, God loves his sheep. The good shepherd 
leaves the 99 and he comes after the one and the means by which the good shepherd comes after the 99 it's you as a church member if you are busy and you are tired and you are intimidated by the fact that they don't want to be bothered at all they are resistant toward you nevertheless the bible says that if anyone among you wanders and one of you goes after them and brings back that soul please know that in so doing you save that soul from death and you cover a multitude of sins. So, it is essential, it is important that we go after these people. Consider it from an evangelistic point of view. Before you were saved, you did not want an evangelist. But what did God do? In his providence, he made a confluence of your path and the evangelist's path and the evangelist gave you the gospel, you heard the gospel, and you were converted. But you weren't looking for him. He came after you. How did he come after you? Through means of an evangelist. You did not choose me, but I chose you. He came after you, and he got you, and you are happy today, and you love that evangelist because they brought you the gospel. You initially did not want that evangelist, but God gave you that evangelist, and what happened? Your soul was saved, and a multitude of sins were covered. In the same way, when one among us has slipped out through the back door, and usually it is gradual, usually it is undetected. The reason that it is undetected is because people will simultaneously live religiously for a little while. If they don't want to be confronted, they will live religiously for a little while. You won't even say anything is wrong. But, but there's this cancer that's festering in their soul, either in the form of unbelief, or in the form of a relational problem, or in the form of some sort of secret sin. You look at them on the outside and they look the same. But then, all of a sudden, one day you say to yourself, hmm, I don't see them as much as I used to see them. And when I do see them, they don't seem to be the same as they used to be. There just isn't that joy. Uh, they don't sing with the same kind of vigor. They don't stick around after the service as long as they used to. They are not in our life. I don't know what's wrong, but I'm telling you that something ain't right. Then they start to drift. And then they start to make and then they start to disappear. The easiest thing you can do at that time is to say, isn't it a shame that we don't see them as much as we used to? I hope they're okay. But praise God, new people are coming in through the front door. What James is saying is, keep an eye on the back door and make sure that if someone is drifting, that you... Go after them. How do we do this? Let me give you a little rhyme up close with this. Number one, you need to beware. You need to be aware. Not beware. You need to be aware. Know the state of your flock. Know how people are doing. Know people where people are know what's going on in their lives. 
church is not coming and staring at the back of someone's head, listening to someone stand at the front and say words. Church is hearing the word of God and doing the word of God in one another's lives. That's why you need to be in touch with one another throughout the week. Whether it is in Bible study, or whether it is in prayer, or whether just in conversation. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? There needs to be an awareness of one another. You need to be in one another's lives. Secondly, you need to care. When we detect that someone is drifting, we need to have a genuine concern. And that which motivates our genuine concern is the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for the sheep. One for whom Christ died, we need to go after. For the good shepherd leaves the ninety and nine, and he comes after us. And he has come after you, and he has come after me. Jesus Christ cares. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. We ought to walk as we walk. And if we are to call ourselves Christians, then we need to care about the sheep. And not just the under-shepherds, but as members, we need to care for the fellow sheep. So, number one, be aware. Number two, care. Number three, declare. Declare the gospel to the wandering. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Declare to them the word of God, that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Declare to them the good news, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Declare to them the truth. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Declare to them the word of God. Use the word of God and go after them. And here's what you can do. You can do it with confidence. The reason you can do it with confidence is because if the Spirit of God dwells in that person, they may not initially like what you're doing, they may initially reject what you are doing, but ultimately, if Christ died for that one, and that one is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, even though initially they might they might be standoffish, ultimately, you can go with confidence, declare the word of God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. 100% of the time, if you go after someone who is an actual sheep, they are going to come back to the fold. If they don't, they are probably a goat. And coming back doesn't necessarily mean that they come back to this church, although that would be glorious, wouldn't it? But they need to be in the fellowship of God's people walking in righteousness somewhere. They don't come back, then what you are actually doing is not restoration, but evangelization. And in evangelizing, you perhaps are bringing the gospel to their heart for the first time, in which case, you know what you're doing? You are saving a soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. So anyway, you look at it, whether it's restoration or evangelization, you go and you declare the word of God, and you do it with confidence, knowing that they will come back. 
You need to be aware. You need to care. You need to declare. And then finally, this is the hard part, you need to stare. It is the easiest thing in the world to drop hints, to speak circuitously, to drop words which are euphemistic, and to appease our own consciences by saying, well, I tried, I tried, but they didn't want to hear, when in reality, all we have really done is enough to just appease our own conscience. What we need to do in rescuing the perishing, we need to go to them, and we need to, and I'm speaking here more figuratively than literally, but sometimes literally, we need to look them in the eye. And maybe not be so crass as an Ed Moore would be. Maybe your, 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 your demeanor would be more winsome. And that I will leave to you. But ultimately, do you hear me? Do, 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 do you understand, first of all, that I love you? And, and, and I'm only here because I love you and I love God. My heart is broken for you. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I can tell you something's rotten in Denmark. And I can tell you that you're not who you used to be. You can blame it on work. You can blame it on tiredness. You, 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 you can say a number of things. But I'm telling you, something ain't right. And I'm here because I love you. And I'm calling you to repent. Jesus forgives those who repent. Will you come back? Will you come home? I think we need to have that boldness to stare people down and to confront them with the truth. If we do, please know that he who brings back the wanderer from the error of his way, saves the soul from death, covers a multitude of sins. Any questions or comments before I close in prayer? Anything that where I was not clear any way in which I was ambiguous. Anything that I need to clear up before we take a little break for sure. Yes. Right. This couple, they're living in sin, never heard the gospel before. I give them the gospel, they come to church, they get saved, they're on fire for the Lord, and Six months later, they disappear. Won't return my call. Nothing. Just total vanishment. So, I, I can't even get the guy to return my call. So I sit down and I hand write the guy a letter. I don't even trust the postal service. I drive to his house. And I drop the letter in his mail slot. 365 days passed before I even hear a word. June of 2006, shock. The guy calls up, says, we want to come back. But the door is wide open. Please come back. This guy now, I, you know these people 
you, you know the people I'm talking about. The people who argue with text all the time, with Bible verses and sermons and quotes from Puritans. And it's like, you do not have enough time in the course of a day to read everything that is in. I'm exaggerating when I say the guy won't leave me alone, but the guy who has since moved to North Carolina is always firing texts at me, talking about his love for Jesus Christ, and he says, someday I need to sit down with you in tears and tell you how much I love you and how much I appreciate you coming after me. So, you're right. It, 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 it sometimes is not a, a David and Nathan situation where the person depends on the spot. The Holy Spirit works different timing with different people. Yeah, ex- excellent observation. Anything else? Yes, Bill? 100%, yeah, yeah. Uh, these things I've written to you to believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, K-N-O-W, know that you have eternal life. Yeah, so, uh, 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 100%. I believe with all of my heart that I, that I am saved. Yeah. But by faith alone, in Christ alone. I just don't think that the person who has left their wife and has gone off and lived the life of a, a drunkard with no fellowship in uh, the church at all and is uh, uh, taking God's name in vain should have any assurance that they are that they are saved. Uh, I think I think assurance is something which comes and goes and is contingent upon obedience and evidences of sanctification. Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and the sanctification is an indicator as to whether or not the justification has taken place. But yes, I believe we can have the great blessing of service that Jesus is, is out. All right. Uh, Right, I need to close because the uh, hour is uh, hour is uh, such that we need to take a break before church. Uh, Father in heaven, I pray that even now, as I uh, know very little about this church, but perhaps even the people in this church know of and are even thinking about various individuals in this church, or even in their family, friends at work, or whatever, who have heard who have drifted. I pray, God, that you, by your Spirit, would give them the grace to chase these people down. And, uh, Lord, I pray that your grace bring these people back. Uh, Lord, we know that you will. And so I pray this in confidence uh, in the name of Jesus Christ.